Welcome to the Yogi's Roadmap, a podcast featuring Bhavani Sylvia Maki, an international yoga teacher, musician, and author of the Yogi's Roadmap, the Patanjali Yoga Sutra as a Journey to Self-Realization. I'm Sinead Trudeau, a student of Bhavani and a teacher of yoga. These are conversations from the heart. The Yogi's Roadmap podcast explores yoga as a journey of compressed evolution off the beaten path toward breakthrough experiences. Bhavani believes that engaging in the full science and art of yoga uplifts us, deepens our connection with authentic self and to the source of joy within for personal growth and deep transformation. Bhavani Sylvia Maki has been studying the art and science of yoga for nearly 40 years. In her teaching, she interweaves the insights she has gathered into a holistic exploration of the microcosmic and macrocosmic self. Dedicated to exploring yoga in its complete expression, her teachings are steeped in the traditions of Patanjali's classical eight-limbed yoga, with an emphasis on integrity of alignment and the use of yoga as a powerful tool for healing. This project was conceived out of the desire to have more, deeper, intimate conversations with my teacher, and a request from one of Bhavani's own teachers, Rama Joyti Vernon, who once said to her, let's get you out of the jungle and into the world. Bhavani lives on the island of Kauai, Hawaii with her husband Ray and their son Nico. Welcome to the Yogi's Roadmap Podcast, off the beaten path toward breakthrough experiences. <laughs> so I'm going to jump right in. I want to ask you about how you came to yoga and how yoga found you. So you've talked many times about how you took your first yoga class at nine years old. And I want to ask you about that experience. You know, I, I um, wonder how yoga found me also, I have to say, and, uh, I would say it was really grace. It was, it was such, I, I'm so curious about that. And these are, these are parts of those, the mystery that we don't know, but that is just clear that there's a thread that's pulling us along. And um, yeah, so, you know, I mean, I was born in 1968. So in the, and in the ethos of that time, it was such a, um, groundbreaking time of consciousness raising and of exploration of the possibility of consciousness. And in that great diaspora, yoga was really starting to gain a little bit of a foothold. And it was still kind of a fringe thing, but it was around. So I remember being really little, like before first grade and pretending to be a yogi. And I would take Padmasana and I would do this with my sister and I would prepare, like pretend to lay on a bed of nails. So I have no idea where that came from, but it was just kind of a form of play. And, but somehow it interested me, it compelled me. And then, you know, I wasn't, there wasn't any instruction or anything like that. But one day I was um, 
I think I was in third grade and my girlfriend, Mala, and it was only like 10 years ago where I went, oh, Mala, right? You know, her mother was probably a yogini and I was going to have an after school play date with her. And her mom said, hey, do you girls want to do some, go to a yoga class with me? We were like, sure, let's go. And we went and it was it was one of those light bulb moments. Like I can even remember, it wasn't even just in my body, but it was like when your eyes open and, and you can see how the world is alive and there's this sense of like sparkling, scintillating energy. And we did, it was very, very classical kind of yoga. You know, it, it wasn't goat yoga or chocolate yoga or any of those things. It was just really old school yoga. I don't even know what lineage it was because no one talked about that back then. Yoga was just yoga. But I imagine it may have been um, Satchitananda. I, that's just my inkling. Um, and we did really classical poses like Surya Namaskara, the old school style. Uttanasana. Um, we did... Um, Paschimottanasana, Baddha Konasana, Sarvangasana, you know, shoulder stand. And I just remember this feeling of having arrived, that Atha Yoga moment, and that it was like this memory of something that I had always known and that I had lost and that I was going to do this for the rest of my life. And I, I maybe went to one or two classes more after that, but I just kept playing with it on my own. And I didn't even think of it. It wasn't like doing yoga. It was just right. It just felt so right. And, um, you know, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. So my father was a professor at University of Chicago, which was really interesting. And they've written books on this community because... It's like this um, hotbed of intellectuals. At the time, there were the most Nobel Prize winners in the world. And being in the city, it was surrounded by the ghetto and then the lake on one side. And our alley behind our house is where the ghetto began. Like literally, there was like a, um, it was almost like a, a line in the sidewalk, but you, it was like, there was the right side and the wrong side of the street, et cetera. So that situation and my parents um, are both European. They both grew up starving during the war, World War II. They had so much trauma and fear. And then there was also a history of incest and abuse and all of this. So I was dealing with that in my home. It wasn't safe. And I just remember in that first yoga class, feeling totally safe. And it wasn't a familiar feeling. And, you know, it's like, as a little child, to have that kind of an ache, to have that kind of a longing, to be touched in that way. And it was something that I could access for myself was... Um, you know, it was beyond words. It's too sweet for words. And it's really interesting because, you know, who would I be without that? And I can say with conviction that yoga has saved my life. 
Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, as I'm, you know, now I'm 54 and a half. <laughs> so do the math, you know, I mean, I haven't had like a, I didn't have like an official yoga practice, but I was dipped in yoga and, and, and exploring it, you know, and, and now that I think about it, I'm not saying I'm a Rishi at all, but when we look at the tradition of how yoga evolved, it was like something that you explored on your own through your own curiosity. So I didn't really have much formal training until much later, um, but I was just curious. And that nature of curiosity and creativity is what really carried me forward. So yoga has just like led me on, on all these wonderful, um, you know, kind of like paths that are ultimately coming home to myself. And it was much later, you know, as I, as you know, when I was introduced to the yoga sutras and one of the professors at University of Chicago, Mercia Eliad, he wrote at length on, on shamanistic paths and yoga as shamanism, particularly the Patanjali Yoga Sutras. And so the path of the shaman is when you wake up and you realize that something is missing in your ordinary experience of the world. And you're, you're, you know that something has been, you have this longing and you're in touch with this longing, you're in touch with this wound. And as much as you're searching for the healing and you're looking through all of these different um, mediums, you realize that you can only heal yourself. So it's said that the path begins when you recognize what has been, that something's lost or something's been taken away from you. And then it's this long journey where you go to some height, you go to some distance, you go to some depth, you go into the dark woods, you start unearthing in yourself and you rediscover this essence or this light that has been missing in you. And then you come back home and you actually have a choice. You may not go back home because that's a whole other yoga practice. We've all heard Ram Dass's, um sage teaching, if you think you're enlightened, go home for Thanksgiving, right? So some never go home because it's just too difficult to maintain that light. But then some like Prometheus, they, they, you know, who stole fire from the gods, brought it back to humanity to evolve the culture. So it's, it's, um, it's been this long journey of just coming back to myself and kind of reclaiming my my own, my own joy, my own creativity, and ultimately, yoga is about reclaiming our wholeness. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's a long journey, you know? It's like, we were talking about this yesterday in the Yoga Sutra Mentorship, um, about crystal clarity in Sutra 141, and that, you know, we can't really have crystal clarity until we develop self-esteem. And so it's like going out into the world and, you know, when you're really like chasing your own wholeness 
and we do that through the medium of the world, then we develop a sense of self-esteem and capacity. And of course, our dharma, what is our work and our own healing, then becomes our gift to the world. So then the world reflects back to you your worth. Someone says, oh my God, you said something to me that changed my life. And you think, I did? Really? That's incredible. You know, I was just sharing my own process. And then we develop enough self-esteem and our ego gets healthy enough where we can let it go. Then we're clear, right? So yeah, you know, it, 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 it took a lot to develop that self-esteem, get the ego big enough and healthy enough. Um, you know, and of course it's still kicking around and knocking around, but just feeling the ease that um, grace is leading me by the heart. Wow, thank you. It's really, really important to hear you articulate that journey because often um, I find a similar path is like I... I was steeped in this tradition, as you call this, an indigenous yoga tradition since I was born. But to be able to put words to that and, and be able to say, yeah, at, at a very young age, it was in the culture and, and you got this from somewhere and you just started playing with it and how empowering that must have been as a young person who, you know, you, know, you grew up in Hyde Park, right? Yes. Yeah. And what an, you know, what a culture that was <laughs> at that time. And then being able to be infused by that as well and come to this, this yoga tradition. That's, wow. It's you, amazing. Yeah. Go ahead. No, please continue. Well, I was just, you know, kind of reflecting on your journey and what it would be like to be raised in a yogic tradition and um you know seeing how you in your own way it's like as much as even when we're born into something and you know Patanjali says we're already born in our wholeness but we have to discover that on our own so it's like seeing your own unfolding and I think that's the beauty of yoga and when we're stuck in these, um, you know, the branding or the, um, you know, the hijack where this is a tradition and this is the only way, et cetera, we kind of lose the beauty of the eclecticism. And that isn't, that doesn't mean because I very much value and it's been an integral part of my experience is having a close relationship with my teacher. And I'm not talking about a weekend. I'm not talking about a year. I'm talking about decades. Um, you know, and, and as I look at you, who I, you know, I have so much respect and admiration for, like you're the future of yoga right here. Um, that, you know, we find our tribe in that way. And being born into a tribe, you know, or being born into a tradition and getting inculcated with that with that awareness, because like it says in the Gita, we inherit the nervous system of our parents. So that's why being born to yogis is such an auspicious birth. Like you already came in with a nautic system that was so 
um, you know, ripe and diverse and expanded. And yet, like, you still got to leave to come and find yourself. And that is like, that is the tradition that every, every generation, there's an evolution to it. And that's what's so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I, I first met you when Jesse and I were on honeymoon in Kauai, that was seven years ago. (laughs) And it was from Mariana, Mariana Kaplan. She said, you know, go, go seek out Bhavani. And I was like, okay, because, um, Mariana's suggestions can either be totally wild or totally on point. (laughs) And it was like, um, and my spiritual teacher, Lee Lozowick, in in his community I grew up in, he had died five years before I met you. And I was only 23 when he left his body. But I found that that the way you articulated the teachings of Patanjali was the same way that he articulated his path of the Western Baals. And so the Baals are from India and they're traveling minstrels, basically they're artists and they're dancers and they go in between casts. So they wear these patchwork jackets um, of the Hindus and the Muslims, but also just lay, lay people and they get married and they also practice, you know, in a way that's very householder, yoga i mean there's ascetic bowels but basically what they do is they're they're the the um predecessors to the gypsies so the gypsies came out of india and that's where flamenco dancing came from and all of those in that tradition as well and so when i heard you articulate the yoga sutra um that very first day <laughs> like i walked into your classroom and it was for me it was a coming home because I heard my, my guru's voice coming through and it was a way to embody his teachings once again. So it had been five years, he'd been gone, left dead. And it was such an amazing experience to have those teachings. And so then I went on to study, you know, Sri, um, um, oh, his name just left my mind, um, Sri Anurvan. And to his book, To Live Within, it was actually written by Lizelle Raymond. And um, so she talks about this Samkhya Yoga tradition. And it was like, for me, it just like put all the pieces together with Patanjali Yoga Sutra and the Baals. And I was just like, oh, like such a revelation (laughs) for me as still a young person, you know, it was like 20, late 20s, but it was like, the next level and the next deeper layer of working with my teachers. And so maybe you want to say something about that, but I also want to ask you about your teachers. Yeah. So, um, you know, there isn't a visual perhaps, you know, during this podcast, but I love the way that you were weaving and lacing your fingers together and for me, you know, it's interesting, like we talk about Samkhya philosophy and it, it's it, Patanjali, he comes from the Samkhya tradition, but he was a rogue. He was a renegade. And so, you know, the tradition has always in any in any like 
um, cultural advancement, somebody had to break the rules. The leaders always broke the mold at some point. And the way, you know, so he was really a tantric. And tantra is about weaving the random threads, the, the, the streams and strands that have come into our life and it's really about taking kind of like these loose ends and odd bits and colors and weaving your life into a beautiful tapestry. So that's what I love so much about, you know, when I was introduced to the sutras, well, there was the first introduction, um, which I did dutifully. And I was just like, these are pithy. I'm not really getting it because it didn't have prana. Oh, my God, I just got it. My teacher, Baba Haridas, he was a Mauna Baba. He didn't speak. So anyway, like, <laughs> I mean, there was prana behind it, but he was also a monk. So it wasn't until I had a householder and a woman, my teacher, Rama Jyoti Vernon, who like when she spoke, not only from her heart, but from the, her pelvic floor, like it literally, I just, I started weeping, right? Um, but it was always about stepping out of the tribe and and Patanjali you know came from this shramana tradition which were really free thinkers they advocated free thinking so the way that we we have to the journey begins when you realize that the life you're living is no longer nourishing you and you have to step into the unknown and that is so scary i mean that's the leap of faith that's the leap of courage where you don't know you're, you're just jumping off and you're trusting that you're going to land somewhere. It reminds me of in the, the tarot deck, the, the fool card, which is the zero. That's okay. my card this year. Oh, really? That's quite perfect. And so the zero is actually, you know, this is where Western mathematics kind of fails because they don't teach that as an integer, but it, it's the most powerful integer because it holds all relationships within it. And it's that sense of the, the, the sacred enclave, the sacred circle and what is known and the infinite unknown outside of it. And so in the fool card, you know, there he is, he's got a rose. I believe it's a white rose, I believe. And it symbolizes the purity the innocence, and he's just stepping off of a cliff into the unknown. So that's really the courage, um, you know, and the and that's that's when grace happens. You know, sometimes it isn't even a, a conscious choice. I had this, um, you know, full body like revelation this summer in Greece when I was meditating. We did a ceremony one night and stayed up all night, which I highly recommend, you know, stay up all night and, you know, be trashed the next day because it's good to step out of your, your, your day to day nitty gritty. And I, you know, was so tired and so trying to hold it together and sit and meditate. And I realized that, um, like I kind of reached the end of my rope or the end of my cliff Let's see if I can articulate this well. And the sutras speak about this, that, that surrender is not an effort, but it's a moment of grace. And it's trusting that like, okay, I've done what I can do. 
And there's something bigger. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to lean into that something bigger and let go because it's always been there for me. It's always been there. And it's often in hindsight. I mean, when we're, when we're like under a rock or, you know, pinned against a wall or we're at our rope's end, we often don't see it. But in hindsight, it said we have 2020 vision and we go, okay, now I can really see how this was integral in the arc of my unfolding and my experience. So what have I got to lose? I'm going to lean into it. And it was just, it was just a really beautiful, beautiful moment. Ah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what's happening in my life. You know, it's, it's the end it's the, you know, it's that cliff, it's the cliff edge. And it's like, okay, I, you know, I have done all that I can do. And now I surrender. So take me back to your, would you consider Baba Haridas your first teacher or did it start before that? And how did, how did that happen? How did that happen? Um, I like made my circuitous route to the left coast or the west coast. Um, you know, I'd lived in Canada, I lived on the east coast, um, and finally moved to California, Northern California. How was, old were you? I was 19. Okay. Let me think about that. Yeah, I was 19. I graduated early from high school. Um, and then I was in, in Santa Cruz Mountains. And there was a free yoga class at the Pacific Cultural Center. It was this cool adobe style church in the heart of Santa Cruz. And I went to this free class. And um, I think that was like, I hadn't done a yoga class since I was nine years old. But I have to backtrack because I, I did actually get turned on to yoga philosophy earlier. And that was a, that was a huge pivotal moment. <clears throat> But um, so I went to this class and that's when I was really introduced to um, some Kriyas, the four purifications. And so I just took them on. I just took them on and I continued with my Surya Namaskaras and my few postures. I mean, honestly, less is so much more. You really don't have to, we like to complicate things, but just doing a little bit. And then I had this background in yoga philosophy because um, when I was when I was in high school, I, I was musician. So I played a lot of music. I was a trained classical musician, and then dropped out of that and was you know did self taught gu- guitar. I was a singer, and I was playing in the local watering hole at the University of Chicago, Jimmy's Pub. And they had like you know encyclopedias on the wall, and people were arguing quantum physics and things like that. And so I was playing there, and. Um, I started dating the bartender who was a graduate student. No, actually he was a PhD candidate. So he was a lot older than me. I think I was like, I must've been 16. I was little, but I was precocious. And my girlfriend, Wenda, we looked a lot alike. So I had her ID and I could walk into this bar. So between like shots of Jim Bean and drinking, you know, like line and kugels, I, hooked up with the bartender and you know 
We dated for a little while and then finally looked at me and he said, you know, you're really sweet, but you're a little young for me. And I think you should find someone your own age. But here I have a gift for you. And he gave me a copy of the Bhagavad Gita, which he was writing his dissertation on. And I was so forlorn. Um, I don't even know. I mean, I, I wasn't that forlorn, but you know, it's like there was that part of me that was still trying to find myself through somebody else. And so I opened this book and it was not an easy read. I mean, the first, it was this really exhaustive um, reliance of the lineage of all these people and whatnot, but I just, I just stuck with it. I thought, you know, I want to be as big and as smart as this guy. I'm going to prove myself. So I kept reading and it was just, you know, talking about the ideas of karma. And it was like, for me, like, like I knew it to be true. And that's how yoga has always been for me. It's like, it, it just landed and it was like, you know, the articulation of what I knew to be true. So these ideas of karma and then the other one that really stuck out for me was Maya, was the veils. And I knew, because I came in with a lot of joy. I came in, like, I was just a rascal. I was, um, you know, always naked. Um, naked, jumping into people's laps, you know, sneaking into the neighbor's home, eating their cookies, sitting on their be bellies in bed while, you know, while they were sleeping. Like, I, I just had this tremendous amount of, love. I don't know. God made me that way. It's not anything I did, but I had that kind of joy. And it was really like, it was really um, compressed and shut down. And so I could just feel like I had all these heavy layers on me. And so this idea, you know, this, this concept of Maya and all of these veils and all of the projections of how we should be and shouldn't be, I just knew it to be true. So my whole lens had shifted. So even though I was doing like a little bit of asana, I really feel like that it was the, the Gita that, that just pulled the veils off and I started to see more clearly and then it was on. I mean, honestly, I, I like made this vow. I took this brata and I had no idea what I was doing. And I, 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 said to myself internally, I want to complete all my karmas in this lifetime. Now, I probably won't, but making that kind of a commitment, it was just instant karma, instant karma. So many things happened and it was a rough ride, you know, for a really, really long time. But um, I always knew that there was a purpose behind it. And I think that's the difference. You know, it's like so many people are, are in pain. Pain's not something you can get away from, even though in the dictionary, pain is defined as what we try to get away from. It's really? Always, yeah. I looked it up. I mean, I'm a linguist daughter. So I'm like, well, what is, you know, what does this word mean? I, I know what it is, but like, how is it defined? So pain is defined as what humans strive to end. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And um, then I, I really became clear that there, that pain could have a purpose. 
And that whatever pain, even though pain is endless, not every pain is endless. And we can move to deeper layers and that the purpose behind it is that we gain wisdom so we don't have to create the same pain again, right? Um, so yeah, my um, when I studied with Patabi Joyce, who I studied with for quite some time, he used to call it, call he had this, this phrase he would say, the sweet pain of being alive. Yeah, so Baba Haridas was really my first teacher, but I only, you know, I would come out of the mountains because I didn't live in Santa Cruz proper. I lived up the coast from Davenport towards Half Moon Bay and then six miles up a, a private dirt road in the middle of the Redwoods without running water or electricity. So I would have to come all the way down, you know, and that was like a good 30, 30 minutes or 40 minutes. It seemed like a long ways back then. So again, I just would hit a few classes, but I took it on. And then the yoga worked on me. It worked on me from the inside out. Um, I didn't really have, and I, and I, and I'm a learner, you know, I come from a long line of learners and academics. So, you, you know, this is like, I'm, I'm very attached to my library and I would just read and learn and practice and, um, and, and the ache ache was so deep the hunger was so deep that I don't really know that I had a choice I'm curious about that because it seems to me that right now in our current culture of 2022 there's a lot of distractions to not feel that ache or that burning desire, or that, you know, even the ability to take it on, like you've talked about that a lot. And I, I really resonate with that mood of taking something on. And I wonder, I'm curious what you think, is it just your disposition that was ability to take it on and how much of it is now just being filled with distraction or I don't know, I'm, I'm curious. You know, that's such a good question, but I can say statistically, I should have overdosed in an alley with a needle in my arm. You know, coming from a history, like a deep, deep history of, of trauma and abuse and you know, having been raped and molested and just beaten down on every level. Um, you know, I was, I was trying to get away from pain. And there was a period too where, you know, somebody turned me on to, I don't know, it was some kind of like, like, are they, I think barbiturates. So you take, I don't a know what, got, I don't know, you know, it was something like that, but you take a pill and you, you go to sleep and you feel nothing. And I remember, you know, and I was like, oh my God, this is great. Like, I really just wanted, in some ways, I just wanted to, I would have chosen being dead over being alive because it was so painful. So then to find something that could take me out of this feeling of like, like there was, there was no coherency in my family. There was no place to, 
there was no place to hide. And then, you know, I learned much later and it was my sister who actually pontificated it for me. I was the dog that everybody kicked at the home. So it was just so painful. And then this grace of yoga came into my life and it felt safe. It felt wonderful to be alive. Like I could see the beauty. I could see the joy that I had come in with. And, and joy again is a word that is, you know, that has become watered down and it has a saccharine sweet quality like, oh, enjoy, enjoy. But I'm talking about, I'm talking about the joie de vivre, you know, oh, the, what we see in the plants as they're bursting forth, what we, what we've all been seeded with in our blood. And I could feel that again. It was just like, I mean, it was like, I was, Remember in that sutra class where it was like, we're, you know, you're drowning in the sea of samsara, a conditioned existence. You're not thinking how you got there. All you're thinking is how you can get out. So it was like, I was being, um, I was, I was being thrown a life preserver. Let me just pause this for a second. Yeah. So, you know, somebody like, Somebody threw me a lifeline and I just grabbed on. I grabbed on because I didn't, you know, here's the thing. I didn't know how to get out of this situation. I didn't know how to change. I didn't know how to do anything different, but something like inside of me had instant recognition. Um, like there was a, a crystal clarity in that, which was immediate. Um, and, and I've been really fortunate that way you know I mean some things for for sure I belabor and you know I've learned in the sutras it's like what does our mind do we hit upon a truth and then the mind argues itself out of it and that's not necessarily a bad thing because we do want to have logic and rational thinking but when it comes to like spiritual growth which isn't just some woo-woo word I love what Mr. Iyengar said it it has to land in your cells. It has to land in your nervous system. It has to land in your emotional body. It has to land in your rational mind. Only when we've, only when we've um, addressed all those aspects can we call something spiritual. It's not a bypass. It's like going through all of these avenues. Um, you know, so sometimes I will do that in other situations, but there was none of that with yoga. I just, I just knew, I just knew. So then Baba Haridas asked, he asked you to go study with Patabi Joyce or he suggested it or? He did, you know, so, um, so basically, I mean, I had moved to Kauai at that point and backtrack I think it was yeah the year I was 19 I was hit by a car walking across the street by a drunk driver um that's an amazing story in itself and um so should we you want to tell it I guess I could you know yeah yeah um yeah so I was in this you know dysfunctional relationship surprise surprise you know because that's all that I knew and this boyfriend was really, really controlling. Um, and so we were deadheads. And so he was off on tour. And I said, well, I'll meet up with you later. 
And I went to Boulder, Colorado, and I was checking out Naropa. I wanted, I was interested in their sound healing program. So I was staying at a little like hostel and I went and did a day of classes and I was just so turned on. So I was going to cross the street to the payphone. This is pre-mobile phones to call him and break up with him. And as I was stepping into the street, which, oh my God, is the picture of the fool card. I looked left, I looked right, I looked left, the coast was clear. And as I was stepping into the street, I had to sneeze. So I went, and you know how you close your eyes? And so there was this moment, you know, there was this moment, it said that like the soul leaves the body in that moment, that's why they say bless you. And then the next thing I knew, I was completely like, floating and I know it sounds trite but it's the real deal and there was just infinite light and I felt myself expanding into the infinite expanse of I mean you know what was it just of lightness of being and I thought this is then I had a moment and I thought well should I go back and I thought nothing's holding me back I don't have kids. I have nothing holding. I'm going. And then I heard this woman screaming. Oh my. And I thought, oh shit, I got to go help this woman. So I came back and I opened my eyes and she was standing above me and screaming. And I thought, wow, she's really distressed. And I tried to get up to help her and my body wouldn't move. So I went out again and I was just like evaporating, literally evaporating into the light. And then the next thing I heard was the voice of the paramedic saying, breathe, breathe. And so I came back in and fortunately, I mean, the the grace behind it was because I was sneezing. You know, if I had seen this car coming, I probably would have gone rigid and broken a lot of bones. I didn't break a single bone. I mean, I tore my rotator cuff. I had a second degree tear in my knee. I had glass coming out of my body a year later. And then I had all of, like, I had such severe whiplash and all of these tears along my spine that um, my body would go into spasms and I would be dry heaving. But they couldn't treat it in any other way. I mean, I would see the chiropractor, my body would seize up and I'd have to go two days later. And that's, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't working for me. I knew I couldn't do that. So um, that's when I really took on asana practice. So I, you know, got deeper into my asana practice. I moved to Kauai and Kauai, the, the, the climate was perfect where in the cold, like the cold chill of the mountains, it would put me into hypertension. So my body felt better. And I got introduced to um, Ashtanga Vinyasa system from a teacher, Chandra, who nobody knows and nobody knows her last name because none of that mattered back then. And she did her own eclectic version of it. And she'd also studied under Baba Haridas. So there were the four purifications, the Kriyas. And then when she was, um, she was moving to Maui, where she still is today, I believe. And at the last class, she said, don't worry, I'm not leaving you without a teacher. 
Bhavani, well, I was Sylvia at the time. Sylvia is going to take over my classes. And of course, I freaked out and I'm laying there in Shavasana. And I, I went and I said to her, I'm not ready. And she said, no, you're not. But you're the one. So you have to promise me that you're going to step into this role and you're going to do 20 minutes of study every night. So I thought after that, oh, my God, I got to get some training. So I went back to Mount Madonna Center, did training. And, you know, he had told us younger ones that it would do us well because we had so much energy to study Patabi Joyce's system. So then I was like, okay, I got to go to Mysore. I got to go to India. And I started, and that's when I kind of, you know, that's when I met Patabi Joyce. And um, I made seven trips to visit him there. I also visited him in France and England, all over the U.S. And, um, you know, hosted him a couple of times on Kauai. And that was, that was a really amazing journey. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't so clean as people know, um, but he had something for me. He taught me tapas. He taught me, he taught me real discipline. Yeah. So that was how Baba Hari, Hari Das, he said, you know, go do that. And then it was interesting because it was still really kind of, um, you know, I, I, I got in there before it got really big and really sexy. I think Madonna was the one who really blew it up. Um, so then as the Ashtanga Vinyasa system became really um, glitterati and sparkly and kind of like this elite group of athletic super yogis, um, you know, the students would go to Baba Haridas and his, because people were equating Patanjali's Ashtanga yoga with the Ashtanga Vinyasa system. And they said, well, what do we do? Because people have this expectation. Should we change the name? And he wrote on his chalkboard because he was silent. He said, no, this is Ashtanga. This is Patanjali's full Ashtanga system. You don't change the name. And I think, you know, Patabi Joyce gave that name to it to inspire people to go a little bit deeper. Yeah. Thank you for that clarification. I think that's really helpful for yeah. the, about the Ashtanga. Um, so I want to, I want to talk about Rama Joyti Vernon also. <laughs> we only have a few minutes left, um, but I want to include her because there was a pivotal moment for you when you hosted her um, on Kauai. And I want you to talk about that also. Yeah. So, you know, I was just doing my thing, teaching yoga and basically I had like three or four jobs. I was teaching piano. I was teaching flute. I was teaching voice. I was teaching at the Waldorf school, um, French, believe it or not, and making smoothies and cleaning houses. Like I did anything. I lived in a shack and felt like a queen because um, I was living on Kauai. And, you know, I, I did all of this so I could just do yoga and then teaching was such a joy because I was learning so much and realized that my students, I was a student with them under my teacher. So they were raising me like those first classes. I had a piece of paper and I was like, 
Hari Vritta. You know, I mean, they knew that I was, I had been, I had been elected into this position and I would, and, and we just loved the practice. So it wasn't ever about the teacher. So, um, you know, teaching was such a joy for me and such a privilege. I, it was never about making money. You know, it was never meant to be a career. And I, I would do anything just so I could keep doing yoga and teaching yoga. Um, so anyway, I was like, I would teach, literally, I cannot even remember all the places that I would, that I've taught. I would teach on this person's lanai, um, you know, in this person's backyard, like anywhere. So at one point, this woman, Lynn Moffat, who was kind of like one of she she'd been she was one of Bikram's original students. He taught her one on one, and he was a shyster, as we all know. But like as was Patabi Joyce, but they had something. That doesn't mean that you don't have to throw away the teachings just because someone's flawed. So and then she came from a Baramji tradition. She like had a true yogic tradition, and I had done the training with her daughter at Mount Madonna. So she moved to Kauai and she was looking for somebody to open a yoga studio with. There were new yoga studios on Kauai, except for Enshara Mahal, Taj Mahal's wife. She had a bookstore on the south side of the island where they would do yoga classes sometimes. So Lynn wanted to open a really like a space dedicated to yoga. And so she was looking around like who she was going to do this with. And there were teachers here and there. Everybody kind of had, you know, very, it was still really niche and kind of fringe. And um, so anyway, her daughter told me, told her about me. And I guess she came to my class and vibed me out. And she invited me to open a studio with her. So we had, we opened the studio, you know, with my, I, I'm, I've been a student of astrology since I was 17. My husband is a really, a, a, a very good astrologer. I was in a community of astrologers and I'm talking about people who, they weren't dilettantes, like everybody's an astrologer now, but like really steeped in the science. And at that point, like charts, you had to draw them up. It was a mathematical process. It was like, it was, it was arduous. So I was in this community of astrologers and we sat down and we found the auspicious date, which was 9-9-1999. And then we actually got PO box 990, you know, like serendipitously. So we opened the studio and the monks from the Hindu temple, which we have a really nice relationship came and they did a puja like a real puja and the, the head Swami said, may this be more than a yoga studio, but a place of great learning. May it become a university of yoga. And he really like set this imprint, but all we were really doing was asana in there. So I had my Ashtanga classes, Lynn had her Bikram classes, which I wasn't that psyched about Bikram practice but I had so much respect for her and that's where it really is about the teacher it doesn't matter what you're doing so much and um this woman Barbara Curl came and she hang on a second here 
So Barbara Curl was really a luminary. Um, you know, she had, you know, this visions of the advancement of the community and the possibilities of Kauai and would work with the, you know, with the local government and kind of the other visionaries and inspired people on the island. And she ended up hosting Rama Jati Vernon for this conference on Kauai called WOVA, Women of Vision and Action. And then they invited local people to, you know, I was invited to teach yoga at this conference. Um, and the theme of this conference was, how are we going to train the next generation of leaders? Like we need, you know, and when you look at indigenous communities, it's like there's certain children that don't fit the mold. They're the ones that, aren't there, they're not designed to matriculate or to, um, to like learn this kind of like do rote learning. They're more sensitives, they're more intuitives. They have divya drishti. They see things in a different way. They, 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 they're, their field is open in a different way. And they're kind of pulled aside from the tribe and they're given a very special training as healers, right? So, you know, we're kind of lacking that. We're lacking that in our culture. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we create a, um, a, a context where we can hold these, these young visionaries and support them instead of telling them how it should be. Cause we need leaders who are going to be able to break the rules. That being said, you have to know the rules before you break them. So, you know, it was just a really inspired conference. And then Barbara asked me to help counter the expenses of putting together this conference. Would I host Rama for a yoga workshop at my yoga shala? So I said, absolutely. You know, at this point, you know, now everybody's a yoga teacher and I had to learn that I couldn't just have somebody come sight on scene unseen because, whoa, you know, you know, you never know that person's agenda. But, you know, so Rama came in and she taught the yoga sutras and I had learned the yoga sutras. Well, I hadn't learned them, but when I was studying under Baba Haridas and my teacher Chandra had said, you should teach, I thought, okay, I need to, I need to really get a foundation of the basic text. So I I, you know, opened the Shiva Samhita, the Garanda Samhita, the Pradipika. I was already deep into the Gita and the Yoga Sutras. 196 sutras. You can read them in 20 minutes. I had a little bit of unpacking through Baba Haridas's thing, but it was just very like yoga is the, the stopping of the mind. And it, it felt really rigid. And Rama, she, it's hard to put into words, but the way that she spoke and she spoke from her own experience. And she spoke from her heart. She authenticated the teachings and she was a practitioner. So it wasn't theory. You know, people call it like yoga philosophy. Yoga is not meant to be a philosophy. Yoga is a psychology, right? 
So she spoke and I, and at this point I was really deep into Patabi Joyce's system and it was also very rigid in its own way. And there was also, it was highly competitive and hierarchical, um, you know, so like when you achieve proficiency in this pose, you get the next pose if he likes you or if, you know, you're showing up and, you know, there were all of these contingencies so I had gotten really rigid, really rigid in myself. And that longing, that longing that had been like slaked initially through my, my, my um, nascent contact with yoga, it had come back and it wasn't really being addressed. And so as she was speaking and as she was sharing these sutras, it was like, I just saw how yoga, my, the, the way that yoga had become so rigid and honestly, these very patriarchal traditions had actually become another aspect, another veil or another box to break free from. And I literally, I mean, she just cracked me open she cracked me open and she um touched my heart in such a deep way and after that visit I thought I'm gonna learn the yoga sutras <laughs> and I started like memorizing them and I memorized the first chapter there's 51 I memorized them in 51 days and you've memorized the first pada. So you know what that's like, but that's how hungry I was. And, you know, that's, there's a lot more to share about Rama. That is, you know, we, we can go on and on about that. Um, I, I can't even put into words how wonderful it is to find someone who shares from their heart who there's no hierarchy who recognizes who you are and sees you as a companion a colleague and so as much as she was my teacher we connected on such a deep level she was my didi she was my big sister. And that really changed the way that I also relate with my students. I mean, certainly, you know, I, I have, I'm maybe more seasoned and more steeped in things. And so I can hold, you know, I have something that I can share with them. And there is, there is a gradient there. But as far as the level of mutual respect, if somebody has a hunger for what I was hungry for and what I've been eating and cooking and whatnot, there's a soul to soul communion and recognition where, you know, and it's wonderful how, you know, the path unfolds underneath us. And I think it was, you know, we've had so many wonderful conversations. Like it said, the student and the teacher pull the wisdom out of each other. I feel that so much with you. 
and you have this capacity to ask the right questions, you know, it's like all about the right question. And one day we were talking about that and it was like, this is a heart lineage. This is a love lineage. This is a heart to heart connection. And so that's where I really felt that again, the sense of this teacher sitting on a dais. It wasn't that way. She lifted me up to her level. And although she's left her body, like she is enshrined in my heart. Thank you. That's a great place to end for today. (laughs) Perfect. Let it be. Let it be. Thank you. Such a pleasure always to sit with you, Shanae. (laughs) Same. Same. All right. Well, um, maybe before we close, I'll just say that, um, you know, my, my doors are always open. My heart is open and you know, I welcome you and I welcome anyone who is longing for something um, beyond the diluted stream, but something that's really raw, you know, it's like a raw juice. I got raw juice for, you know, anybody who's thirsty in that way. And I, um, you know, I have my book and I have my online sutra stuff. I'm always sharing in different ways. So anybody who's hungry or wants that, you know, come find me, Yoga Kauai. And we'll link all of that in the podcast notes. Yeah, great. Great. (laughs) Aloha. Thank you for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to take these teachings on for yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend. Go to bhavanimaki.com for more resources and ways to connect with her online and in person. Dreaming